This is Section 5 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, Section 5, Territorial Enterprise, March 4, 1863. City Marshal Perry. John Van Buren Perry, recently re-elected City Marshal of Virginia City, was born a long time ago in County Kerry, Ireland, of poor but honest parents, who were descendants, beyond question, of a house of high antiquity. The founder of it was distinguished for his eloquence. He was the property of one Balaam, and received honorable mention in the Bible. John Van Buren Perry removed to the United States in 1792, after having achieved a high gastronomical reputation by creating the first famine in his native land, and established himself at Kinderhook, New Jersey, as a teacher of vocal and instrumental music. His eldest son, Martin Van Buren, was educated there, and was afterwards elected President of the United States. His grandson, of the same name, is now a prominent New York politician, and is known in the East as Prince John. He keeps up a constant and affectionate correspondence with his worthy grandfather, who sells him feet in some of his richest wildcat claims from time to time. While residing at Kinderhook, Jack Perry was appointed Commodore of the United States Navy, and he forthwith proceeded to Lake Erie, and fought the mighty marine conflict which blazes upon the pages of history as Perry's victory. In consequence of this exploit, he narrowly escaped the presidency. Several years ago, Commodore Perry was appointed Commissioner Extraordinary to the Imperial Court of Japan, with unlimited power to treat. It is hardly worth while to mention that he never exercised that power. He never treated anybody in that country, although he patiently submitted to a vast amount of that sort of thing when the opportunity was afforded him at the expense of the Japanese officials. He returned from his mission full of honors and foreign whiskey, and was welcomed home again by the plaudits of a grateful nation. After the war was ended, Mr. Perry removed to Providence, Rhode Island, where he produced a complete revolution in medical science by inventing the celebrated painkiller, which bears his name. He manufactured this liniment by the shipload, and spread it far and wide over the suffering world. Not a bottle left his establishment without his beneficent portrait upon the label, whereby, in time, his features became as well known unto burned and mutilated children as Jack the Giant Killers. When pain had ceased throughout the universe, Mr. Perry fell to writing for a livelihood, and for years and years he poured out his soul in pleasing and effeminate poetry. His very first effort, commencing, How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour, etc., gained him a splendid literary reputation, and from that time forward no Sunday-school library was complete without a full edition of his plaintive and sentimental Perry Gorex. After great research and profound study of his subject, he produced that wonderful gem which is known in every land as the young mother's apostrophe to her infant, beginning, Fie, fie, oo itty bitty booty sing, to poke oo footsie tootsie into mamma's eye. This inspired poem had a tremendous run, and carried Perry's fame into every nursery in the civilized world but he was not destined to wear his laurels undisturbed. 
England, with monstrous perfidy, at once claimed the apostrophe for her favorite son, Martin Farquhar Tupper, and sent up a howl of vindictive abuse from her polluted press against our beloved Perry. With one accord, the American people rose up in his defense, and a devastating war was only averted by a public denial of the paternity of the poem by the great proverbial over his own signature. This noble act of Mr. Tupper gained him a high place in the affection of this people, and his sweet platitudes have been read here with an ever-augmented spirit of tolerance since that day. The conduct of England toward Mr. Perry told upon his constitution to such an extent that at one time it was feared the gentle bard would fade and flicker out altogether, wherefore the solicitude of influential officials was aroused in his behalf, and through their generosity he was provided with an asylum in Sing Sing prison, a quiet retreat in the state of New York. Here he wrote his last great poem, beginning, Let dogs delight to bark and bite, for God hath made them so. Your little hands were never made to tear out each other's eyes with, and then proceeded to learn the shoemaker's trade in his new home, under the distinguished masters employed by the commonwealth. Ever since Mr. Perry arrived at man's estate, his prodigious feet have been a subject of complaint and annoyance to those communities which have known the honor of his presence. In 1835, during a great leather famine, many people were obliged to wear wooden shoes, and Mr. Perry, for the sake of economy, transferred his boot-making patronage from the tan-yard, which had before enjoyed his custom, to an undertaker's establishment, that is to say, he wore coffins. At that time he was a member of Congress from New Jersey, and occupied a seat in front of the Speaker's throne. He had the uncouth habit of propping his feet upon his desk during prayer by the chaplain, and thus completely hiding that officer from every eye save that of omnipotence alone. So long as the Honorable Mr. Perry wore orthodox leather boots, the clergyman submitted to this infliction, and prayed behind them in singular solitude, under mild protest. But when he arose one morning to offer up his regular petition, and beheld the cheerful apparition of Jack Perry's coffins confronting him, the jolly old bum went under the table like a sick porpoise, as Mr. P. feelingly remarks, and never shot off his mouth in that shanty again. Mr. Perry's first appearance on the Pacific Coast was upon the boards of the San Francisco theaters, in the character of Old Pete, in Dion Boucicault's Octoroon. So excellent was his delineation of that celebrated character, that Perry's Pete was for a long time regarded as the climax of histrionic perfection. Since John Van Buren Perry has resided in Nevada Territory, he has employed his talents in acting as city marshal of Virginia and in abusing me because I am an orphan and a long way from home, and can therefore be persecuted with impunity. He was re-elected day before yesterday, and his first official act was an attempt to get me drunk on champagne furnished to the board of aldermen by other successful candidates, so that he might achieve the honor and glory of getting me in the station-house for once in his life. Although he failed in his object, he followed me down C Street and handcuffed me in front of Tom Peasley's, but officers Birdsall and Larkin and Brokaw rebelled against this unwarranted assumption of authority, and released me, whereupon I was about to punish Jack Perry severely, 
when he offered me six bits to hand him down to posterity through the medium of this biography, and I closed the contract. But, after all, I never expect to get the money. Territorial Enterprise, March 7, 1863. Champagne with the Board of Brokers. By a sort of instinct we happened in at Almax just at the moment that the corks were about to pop, and discovering that we had intruded we were retreating when Daggett, the soulless, insisted upon our getting with the Board of Brokers, and we very naturally did so. The President had already been toasted, the Vice-President had likewise been complimented in the same manner. Mr. Mitchell had delivered an address through his unsolicited mouthpiece, Mr. Daggett, whom he likened unto Balaam's ass, and very aptly, too, and the press had been toasted, and he had attempted to respond, and got overcome by something, feelings, perhaps, when that everlasting, omnipresent, irrepressible, unreliable crowded himself into the festive apartment, where he shed a gloom upon the board of brokers, and emptied their glasses, while they made speeches. The imperturbable impudence of that iceberg surpasses anything we ever saw. By a concerted movement the young man was partially put down at length, however, and the board launched out into speech-making again, but finally somebody put up five feet of Texas, which changed hands at eight dollars a foot, and from that they branched off into a wholesale bartering of wildcat, for their natures were aroused by the very smell of blood, of course and we adjourned to make this report. The board will begin its regular meetings Monday next. Territorial Enterprise between March 1st and 12th, 1863. Local Column. Calico Skirmish. Five Spanish women, of unquestionable character, were arraigned before Judge Atwill yesterday, some as principals and some as accessories to a feminine fight of a bloodthirsty description in A Street. It was proved that one of them drew a navy revolver and a bowie knife, and attempted to use them upon another of the party, but, being prevented, she fired three shots through the floor, for the purpose of easing her mind, no doubt. She was bound over to keep the peace, and the whole party dismissed. Territorial Enterprise between February 24th and March 31st, 1863. Portion of Letter from Carson City A Sunday in Carson I arrived in this noisy and bustling town of Carson at noon to-day, per Langton's Express. We made pretty good time from Virginia, and might have made much better but for Horace Smith, Esquire, who rode on the box-seat and kept the stage so much by the head she wouldn't steer. I went to church, of course. I always go to church when I—when I go to church, as it were. I got there just in time to hear the closing hymn and also to hear the Reverend Mr. White give out a long-meter doxology, which the choir tried to sing to a short-meter tune. But there wasn't music enough to go around. Consequently, the effect was rather singular than otherwise. They sang the most interesting parts of each line, though, and charged the balance to profit and loss. This rendered the general intent and meaning of the doxology considerably mixed, as far as the congregation were concerned, but inasmuch as it was not addressed to them anyhow, I thought it made no particular difference. By an easy and pleasant transition, I went from church to jail. It was only just downstairs, for they save men eternally in the second story of the new courthouse, and damn them for life in the first. 
Sheriff Gasherie has a handsome double office fronting on the street, and its walls are gorgeously decorated with iron convict jewelry. In the rear are two rows of cells, built of bomb-proof masonry and furnished with strong iron doors and resistless locks and bolts. There was but one prisoner, Swayze, the murderer of Derrickson, and he was writing. I do not know what his subject was, but he appeared to be handling it in a way which gave him great satisfaction. Territorial Enterprise, March-April, 1863 Examination of Teachers A grand examination of candidates for positions as teachers in our public schools was had yesterday in one of the rooms of the public school in this city. Some twenty-eight candidates were present, twenty-three of whom were ladies and five gentlemen. We do the candidates but simple justice when we say that we have never seen more intelligent faces in a crowd of the size. The following gentlemen constituted the board of examiners, Dr. Geiger, Mr. J. W. Witcher, and John A. Collins. We observe that Messrs. Fousier, Atkinson, and Robinson of the board of trustees were also present yesterday. Printed questions are given to each of the candidates, the answers to which are written out and handed in with the signature of the applicant appended. These are all examined in private by the board, and those who have best acquitted themselves are selected as teachers. In all, we believe, about twelve teachers are to be chosen. Upon each of the following subjects, a great number of questions are to be answered. General questions, methods of teaching, object teaching, spelling, reading, writing, defining, arithmetic, grammar, geography, natural philosophy, history of the United States, physiology and hygiene, chemistry, algebra, geometry, natural history, astronomy. In all, eighteen subjects, with about as many questions upon each. Yesterday they had got as far as the ninth subject, grammar, at the time of our visit, and we presume have got but little further. Today the examination will be resumed. If there is anything that terrifies us, it is an examination. We don't even like an examination in a police court. In vain we looked from face to face yesterday through the whole list of candidates for signs of fright or trepidation. All appeared perfectly at ease, though quite in earnest. We took a look at some of the questions, and were made very miserable by barely glancing them over. We became much afraid that some member of the board would suddenly turn upon us and require us on pain of death or a long imprisonment to answer some of the questions. Under the head of object-teaching we found some ten questions, some of them like a wheel within a wheel containing ten questions in one. We barely glanced at the list, reading here and there a question, when we felt great beads of perspiration starting out upon our brow, our massive intellect oozing out. Happening to read a question like this, Name four of the faculties of children that are earliest developed. We at once became anxious to get out of the room. We expected each moment that one of the board would seize us by the collar and ask, Why is it? or something of the kind, and we wanted to leave. Thought we would feel better in the open air. When the answers of all the candidates are opened and read, we will try to be on hand. We are anxious for information on those four faculties. We think the above a good deal like the conundrum about the young man who went to the Sandwich Islands, learned the language of the Kanakas, came home, got married, got drunk, went crazy, was sent to Stockton. Why is it? 
then under the same head we notice ten questions about mining for silver ores and ten more about the reduction of silver ores why these twenty-three schoolmarms are expected to be posted on amalgamating processes is more than we can guess as this is a mining country we presume it is necessary for a lady to give satisfactory answers to such questions as the following before being entrusted with the education of our little washuites what is your opinion of the one-ledge theory have you seen the ophir horse have you conscientious scruples as to black dyke are you committed to the sagebrush process give your opinion on vain matter and state your reasons for thinking so and tell wherein you differ with those who do not agree with you end of section five